0: Okay, so today is one of those episodes of Gabbing with Gid, where we're going to veer outside of the Bravo universe for a second. But I still hope it's a topic that enough of you are interested in, because I know it's an area of pop culture that I've always found fascinating, the royals. I don't remember the first time I became aware of the British royal family as a kid growing up in America, but I do remember the Princess Diana Beanie Baby. That really is my first kind of memory associated with anything royals. I remember adults' fascination with Diana in general, and my mom loves the Royals, but my own personal interest wasn't really peaked again until 2011 when Prince William married Kate Middleton. I remember watching their wedding on TV and some teachers live-streaming the news during school as they replayed footage from their instantly iconic wedding, and I remained interested after that, but not intensely so, until I spent the first five years of my career working at Entertainment News, where anything involving the Royals clicked extremely well, so we leaned fully in and covered them a lot. And those years of covering pop culture in that sort of day-to-day, 24-hour news cycle sense coincided almost exactly with the introduction and subsequent fascination with Meghan Markle and the Royal World. I remember covering the rumors that this random actress from Suits, a show I still have never seen a full episode of despite having a huge moment on Netflix this year, was dating the Prince of England. And I remember their first outing together at the, at the Invictus Games. What a big deal that was. I remember mining her Instagram account for content to just tell us more about her. And then the subsequent minor scandals that obviously led to bigger ones. And we woke up and came into the office when it was still dark out to cover their wedding in 2018. And I remember just being excited by the prospect of what Megan was bringing to the royal family and what it could represent to the world. In my experience covering celebrities, especially the ones that you cover closely, spending so much time reading up on them, keeping up with them, writing about them so closely that you know it either makes you love them or it makes you loathe them. And this made me love the royals, but more specifically Megan, a lot. I felt invested in her and the full acceptance I'd hoped that she would receive, but ultimately never got. Her story with Harry has been one of the defining pop culture stories of the past five years, and I've kept up with it at more of an arm's length until a big new project drops or we get a big media event, and then I tap back in. So the Oprah interview, the Netflix special, Megan's podcast for Spotify, Harry's book earlier this year, and Finding Freedom, the 2020 bestseller written by a longtime royal correspondent by the name of Omen Scobie, that provided the first intimately detailed account of the Sussex's decision to leave the royal family and move to North America. While Harry and Meghan weren't directly involved in the book, members of their team, it later came out, did provide information for the author to include. So the information here was legit, and the book took Omid's career, and with it, a level of scrutiny, particularly in the British media, which famously tends to be unusually critical of Meghan, to the next level. In November of this year, Omid released his now best-selling follow-up book, Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival, which, to quote the book's official description, is a, quote, "...explosive book that provides a penetrating investigation into the current state of the British monarchy, an unpopular king, a power-hungry heir to the throne, a queen willing to go to dangerous lengths to preserve her image, and a prince forced to start a new life after being betrayed by his own family." It's an incredibly well-researched, well-sourced, and juicy read that paints each and every primary character here in a slightly new light. Like I really did learn something new about each individual person. And it wasn't all positive and it wasn't all negative. Like you kind of he kind of presents it in a way that's like, all right, you make your own interpretation of of what this means for you. But plenty of details from Endgame have made headlines since before it even hit bookshelves. But Nothing has resulted in as much scandal as the passage of the book that discusses conversations that Meghan first made note of in her interview with Oprah, which involved a member or members of the royal family allegedly speculating about the color of their baby's skin. It's a moment seen around the world that immediately had everybody wondering who could have been involved in such a shocking conversation. Megan and Harry essentially didn't speak of the matter again, and neither did the royals. A version of Endgame translated into Dutch leaked prior to its release, and despite Omid leaving the names of the two members of the royal family who were alleged to have taken part in the conversation out of the final version of the book, those names were included in the Dutch translation. As it later turned out, somehow the Dutch publisher and translators were given an earlier draft not yet reviewed by lawyers, which is obviously never intended for public consumption, but somehow it made its way out. So yeah, Endgame has caused a stir, and then some. So since Oman and I follow each other on Twitter, I decided to reach out and see if he'd come on my podcast to talk about the book, the reaction to it, and just all things Royals, and he generously agreed. So here we are. I had an enlightening and fruitful conversation with Omid, where we talked about if there's anything left to say about that translation controversy and his response to people claiming that it was a publicity stunt. We also discussed the common issues that the royal family's roles really boiled down to, whether Meghan Markle ever even stood a chance with Prince Harry's family, where the point of no return was for the couple, and where things go from here for everyone involved. If you are even slightly intrigued by the royals, you'll definitely find this one interesting. And if you love them or find yourself to be firmly on either side of the aisle when it comes to Harry and Meghan and William and Kate, you'll probably come away feeling even more passionately on your side. But anyway, I hope you still enjoy my, my chat with Omid Scobie, and I promise you, you're going to want to read his new book in full. It's called Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival, which I've linked in the show notes for your convenience. It is a total must read. I want to gab. Today we're gabbing with Omid Scoby, the author of the instant international best-selling book Endgame Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival, which came out at the end of November. He also authored the best-selling Finding Freedom, which came out in 2020, which focused on Meghan and Harry's relationship with one another and the royal family. I've been a long-time admirer of Omid's work and his fearlessness in reporting around the royals, so I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast today. Omid, thank you for being here. How are you?
1: It's so good to be here. And you know, you and I have followed each other on Twitter for a long time, but we've never really sat in a space and actually had a full conversation before. So I'm glad we get to do it in front of however many people you've got (laughs) listening to.
0: (laughs) Exactly. No, it's it's fun to have those online interactions become at least somewhat in person, even though you're in LA, I'm in New York. Oh man, you know, we talked a little bit before this, but I just wanted to check in, do a wellness check. How are you? Because I know (laughs) that the press around Endgame has been overwhelming to say the least how are you holding up
1: well thank you for asking and wow yeah it definitely listen i was under no illusion that this was going to be an easy book to drop it goes into areas that i knew would be triggering and uncomfortable for large sections of not only the british public but also the british media you know it goes into that kind of the secret agreements between the palace and the press and so it's only natural then that those same papers are going to do everything they can to kind of protect themselves, but also their secrets. And so you become almost collateral damage in that storytelling. And listen, I've been doing this full time on Royals five, six years now. It's not the first time I had a similar experience with the last book, Finding Freedom. But yeah, this was definitely very intense I won't lie. I was a little relieved when the wheels went up on the plane at Heathrow Airport <laughs> to head back to to LAX. But um, you know, we li- we live to tell the story.
0: <laughs> exactly, and it's one of those things also where it's like these days releasing a book, so many out of context quotes and excerpts and things get released before the actual book gets released, and that's it's not just with your book that kind of happens. Kind of with every celebrity memoir, it happened with Prince Harry's memoir earlier this year. That also makes things difficult, too, right? Because it's like, I mean, I read endgame, and it's like half the things that have made headlines in the past several weeks within context aren't as damning or, you know, no. scandalous as they may be portrayed as,
1: yeah. you know, i um I was frustrated in those the kind of ten days or so before the book came out there were. All these front pages and headlines in the UK about things that were supposedly in the book that weren't even in there. I remember there was one front page of, I think it was the Daily Mail, one of those papers, and it said, you know, the royal author's scathing attack on Kate. And supposedly there's a line in the book where I said, all she's good for is to stand there and grin because she's too afraid to do anything else. And there was just nothing in the book that even fits that description or anything I've said in an interview. And then a few days later, we had the French serialization came out, and those were some extracts that were in a French magazine that then someone ran through Google Translate and turned into stories again in a paper. So I was glad when the book came out, and it's been nice to actually, I don't often look at my DMs, but I have been recently because there have been so many messages and people saying, listen, I wasn't sure what to expect with this book. But what I'm reading here is so different to Good. what has been portrayed in the press. So it's nice to see that at least some of that gets through.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just so thoroughly researched and you know what you're talking about. So it's like something I want to talk about with you is just like it seems like people, at least the British press particularly, sort of really wants to make you part of the story a lot of the time. You know, it, yeah. it seems like... It's almost like a distraction, in my opinion. How do you feel about that? Is that like a calculated effort on their part? Our aides in their ear trying to get you kind of becoming the new villain? Like what is what's behind that?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a bit of all of it. You know, I think the one lazy tactic that we see time and time again from British tabloids is they will weaponize you against yourself and your words, whether that's your story or your reporting. And for me, the the easiest way for that has always been to be like well he's just megan's friend he's just repeating her words or he's their mouthpiece their cheerleader etc and no matter how many times i have literally like at this point like practically got my phones and my text messages out to prove that i'm not the couple's friend it will always come back to that because if you can then dismiss it as like well if he's a biased friend then there's not no reason to listen to him then it kind of dismisses and delegitimizes the reporting. And what's so frustrating about that is that some of that stuff is written by royal correspondents who I've been in the press pens with. It's twenty eleven. We know them. You know, that. You the know these people. Talk. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've been in the same space that they've seen the access I've had. They've seen what I'm capable of doing. But I think really ever since Harry and Meghan's story became the main story, you know, I, I, that was at a time where I think I was also when I went full-time on Royals, it was when I just, I found that my narrative that I was often reporting was different to what was in the press. And, And that's because a lot of what's in the press simply comes from the communications offices at the palaces or Royal sources. And in Harry and Meghan's case, there weren't many journalists that had an inside track on what Megan was thinking and, and saying and doing, or the same with them as a couple. And you know, my background's entertainment news. I was a, an editor at Us Weekly for 10 years. So when they those two got together, it really brought both of my beats together. Convergent. I had yeah. an advantage over others, but somehow when it came to that being represented in the press, it was like just the lazy story about being the friend.
0: It's sort of any any divergence from the narrative. Is just gonna be rejected and, and delegitimized in, in some capacity. So I, I think it's probably best we just talk about this right off the bat before we get into the other stuff I wanna talk yeah. about. But obviously your book has ruffled feathers, as we as we've alluded to. And I think the biggest thing that I've really seen is, you know, the Dutch translation came out Ugh, where it yeah. in yeah, it names two members of the royal family who had Supposedly, had this conversation about Archie's skin color, uh, which was allu- first alluded to by Megan, and- by Megan in her interview with Oprah. You had initially said, "Like I didn't write that. I don't know how this got out." And then you recently wrote an, uh, an article for the Eye where you sort of explain what happened, which was basically like in an earlier draft, it had not been reviewed by lawyers. Those p- two people had been named, but you never, you didn't know that was being sent around. You you were not the one that sent that around. Is there anything left to be said about? that whole situation or maybe brought more broad what do you make of the focus on that particular detail yeah. and and the sort of unfolding of that storyline
1: listen I, I i certainly have said all i need to say on it but i don't mind breaking it down with you you know obviously the day i was in new york i was doing mm-hmm. press and i remember seeing a tweet and someone had made reference to something that was in a name that was in the dutch version and, and my heart sank because i thought oh god what's happened? And so I fired off emails to everyone on my team and we then heard back from the Dutch translator and they said their words were there had been an error in the translation. So then I, okay, fine, I'm I'm armed up, I go on TV, right. I'm able to explain, it. I'm also able to say that the book's been removed and that they're reprinting it. We then find out later in the day that it's not just that one thing that it's in the book, there is also another potential name, there's also other things that have somehow been in this book. So my mind's thinking and I'm thinking, well, there was never a version of this book that I signed off on and finished editing that had this stuff in it. So how did the Dutch have it? Because I was only ever aware of what I was finishing going to the Dutch. And so it took days to figure this out. And of course, in the middle of it, I'm being asked left, right and center, was this a publicity stunt? So many people really believe that it was. And, you know, listen, I've said many times that it wasn't and it wasn't. And if it was, it would have been a stupid one because I think it actually took away from... The conversations that the book should have been prompting, it turned it into a very kind of heated and hysterical situation. I actually think in the UK, it affected sales massively. It was a really frustrating and um, I would say a little upsetting that it happened because I'd worked so hard on this book. We'd spent two months in meetings with two different independent barristers or attorneys, as you guys would say, an in-house legal team, making sure that this was watertight that there was nothing in this book that could be legally challenged. And so yeah, if there are things like names that don't make the cut, then so be it. you know right. you have to be able to show and tell when it comes to proving anything that you're putting in a book. And I think what was even more frustrating was that I actually didn't think it mattered that much that the names weren't in the book. Listen, we were all curious about it I, of I course of course. but the bigger conversation was, the first woman of color or person of color to marry into that family went on national global television and said that there were concerns and the concerns part is a bit often gets missed out when we repeat the story right. about the darkness of the, her unborn child's skin now regardless of whoever said that and of course it's only one person's side of the story it was just gobsmacking to me yeah. that It was never resolved, that it was never considered important enough within this institution to actually have a conversation with someone that was clearly hurt and offended, the one person of colour that has every right to be, if that's how they saw those conversations, or if that's really how they were. And so you think, well, why didn't someone even care enough to want to even clear their own name? I was accused of that. I know I wouldn't sleep until that was until I've cleared the air on it. And then it also speaks to the bigger issue, which is, here's an institution that is supposedly representative of Britain. Well, Britain is a melting pot. It is a multicultural society. It is not the same as it was 100 years ago. Neither is the commonwealth, the predominantly black and brown commonwealth realm of 2.1 billion people, that the monarch is the the head of as well. So these are why I felt it mattered and also listen there's a huge responsibility that harry and megan had when they first brought up this story to oprah of course and then they never brought it up again it was never in the netflix special it wasn't in the memoir so i also as a journalist wanted to get to the bottom of like where did we get with this what went on behind the scenes and that was how the letters came into my orbit and i was able to talk about it in the book because at least we know
0: that Megan and Charles had had conversations about it, even yeah. if they didn't see eye to eye. Right, yeah. and even if that never became public until until recently. So, do you think they didn't bring it up again because those letters were actively being sent between Charles and Megan? There was still an ongoing kind of dialogue about it behind the scenes. Well,
1: it happened only a few months after Oprah. Those those letters, it, it wasn't there weren't many, but it at least felt that they. Despite not seeing eye to eye on it, Mm Ralph felt that there would have been, so there was impossible that there would have been any maliciousness if that kind of conversation was had in the family. And for Megan, it was simply highlighting the unconscious bias may have played a role in this. And if there is, like, let's make it conscious and talk about Mm -hmm. it. That was felt that it was enough. And that any other party involved in this conversation had also made it very clear that they didn't want to talk about it. Right, so the really for them it was like they can't keep on beating the same drum, and sometimes it feels like they do because we as press keep talking about it. Right,
0: exactly. And then you it, realize that well, they
1: haven't spoken about it since twenty twenty
0: one. Yeah, you know. and you write about how like they waited a day to see how the British public was going to react to that story to even release a statement about anything. So it's kind of it again. It, yeah, it all plays into itself. But you know, I th- I think one of my favorite and like most illuminating chapters was chapter seven, which is race and the Royals. And you do an excellent job of sort of demystifying the idea that there, that racism does not exist in Britain. And there's a, there's a really deep history of, of the Royals connections to, to slavery and, and different things in more recent, more recent eras that are would be considered racist. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, even if you're being the most cynical, you can be, you know, megan coming into the fold was a huge missed opportunity for the family to to maybe right some of those wrongs or at least like right the ship and and have the and you know be better about about these topics in the future was there a distinct turning point with megan and like the handling of her coming in in that respect or do you think that like they just never were going to give her a chance
1: i think that there's there's a history there of like women really Having a steep hill to climb when you yeah. marry into that family, and you need to look at Fergie and mm-hmm. Diana and now Megan to see that, regardless of race or background, you know, Diana was as quote unquote thoroughbred as they mm-hmm. come, um, and it still didn't work for her. You know, there is it's not only what your background is or what's expected of you, there's also this um, expectation to submit to fall in line, to maintain the stiff upper lip, to not emote, to not feel. These are almost kind of like inhuman expectations. And so Megan, I think, probably had more against her from the start than she ever would have known. I think there was obviously some naivety there. So when you add in the fact that she was American and the fact that she was half black and the fact that she was you know, a a Hollywood actress and, you know, all the the stereotypes that come with that. Yeah, it obviously, she was kind of almost doomed from the start. When you look at where she was entering, she was not joining some progressive company overseas. This was like the last institution in Britain that had yet to kind of truly modernize. And it was one of the things that made the story so interesting to me because being in the press pack, Um, I'm half Iranian myself, my my mother was an immigrant. I, perhaps my lens on things is slightly different. You know, I'm, my dad's Scottish, so I feel like I have a good grasp of British culture and society, which I grew up in. But I also see it from another side as well. And I felt that for Megan's story, it was important to be able, for someone on the ground that was there in a front row seat, to report on it fairly, but also closer to where her perspective, may have been as well, because I think that in this day and age, we're so quick to dismiss other people's feelings on things because we don't understand them. We never want to try and see it from someone else's perspective, especially when that person is from a minority group. And so I thought it was, it, it almost felt like a responsibility, actually. Right.
0: And you know, at the beginning of that answer, you named Fergie, Diana, Megan, but you didn't name Kate. And I feel like there is this There's this protectiveness of Kate that to somebody who had no idea who she was, you'd think that she was quote-unquote one of them, and she she was sort of part of that bloodline to begin with because of the way that they protect her and in a different way to all the other women that you just named. Why is that? Is that because she did fall in line more? Is that Does she check different boxes than the rest of those women didn't check?
1: I think sometimes it just boils down to personality. You look at Diana, she he had a voice she wanted to use it there were things that she was extremely passionate about even if they weren't checking the boxes of the royal's interest with sarah ferguson she had a kind of cheeky bubbly sensibility that i think that just automatically made her a little bit of a kind of thorn in the paws of right. like, the institution and 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 she did say and do silly things at times as well and then with megan it was like here was a woman who had already like accomplished so much and wasn't gonna come in like a young little trainee ready to kind of Cross her legs and her hands and just wait and be told what to do. That's just not what we expect. That's just not how a grown adults in their thirties enter a business or a job to to behave. Especially, you know, an accomplished woman. I think with with Kate, she joined this so early. Her relationship with, as we're seeing in these new episodes of The Crown, the part, the the kind of like even unconscious training to kind of prepare for for that day. Began so early for her, and I think that she was willing and capable. And there was some criticism in the book about the the chapter on Kate, and you know, some people said, "Well, you you practically call her cold," and you know, how could you? Actually, I I talk about what I describe as a stately detachment that she has, that I think has actually served her really well in this role because. You look at the last family member that had that "quote unquote" stately detachment. It was Queen Elizabeth II herself. You know, we mm-hmm. knew nothing about her. We knew she liked horse racing, and we didn't really know anything else about her, her her passions when it came to politics or social issues. We didn't right. really know her opinions on anything, and and that allowed the the nation, the world, to project onto her what it was that they needed from her in that role. And I think Kate, is on the path to being able to achieve that herself when she herself becomes queen alongside King William one, And so it's been incredibly successful for her, but I also, I can't help as a human just wonder at what cost does that come at? Because we're we're almost describing robots at this point, you know? Yeah. and, and and you know that she has been through some really hard times. You know, I you know I remember being with her in um, Malaysia. It was the same day that she had found out that there was photos of her that had been taken sunbathing without a swimsuit in uh, the south of France, and they were published in a French tabloid and her private aid it was like 2014 or maybe even earlier her pri- private secretary and her press secretary came over to me on the morning because i was joining them for an engagement at a mosque in kuala lumpur and i was the only journalist going into that with them and he said i've had to tell them in the morning that these pictures were coming mm. and they said that william was furious but kate was very much like Okay. Well, you have it under control, and I trust you to be doing the right things. And like an hour later, she's coming out the car, and like nothing had happened. It's so rare, even with celebrities, even on in any public space it's very hard to find people who are truly capable of compartmentalizing attachment at yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and 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 it's a skill but it's also something that's so fascinating to me that i do want to analyze it and yeah. study it in a way yeah yeah
0: and, and especially in an age when authenticity and sort of break, breaking that sort of fourth wall is more valued, is valued more than ever. And it's almost like, yeah, this is how it's always done. And these are the qualities that made the queen so amazing and are preparing Kate for the role that she will inevitably inherit. But you want, you wish that there was just a little bit more room for some, a little bit more humanity, a little bit more authenticity, a little bit more of that kind of human quality.
1: Uh, And I think, you know, people often ask, you know, they want to know about Kate and Megan and where it went wrong. And I talk in the book about the times where Megan's going through her absolute lowest points. And here we have a mental health ambassador, someone that is uh, uh, hoping to be a pioneer in the early years sector when it comes to understanding uh, the development of children from womb to the age of four or five. And so you have an outsider going through mental health problems. Who's next door, who's pregnant, and had absolutely no no support or even interest wow. from wow. her sister in law. Listen, there's no there's no rule that sisters in law have to be there of course for not. each other. In fact, they're often not close. Siblings in law just aren't but you know, they're in such they a rare know musicians. each other. Yeah. But to be in such a unique position, I can't be alone in thinking, How is that possible?
0: You're not. You're not. Oh I man, in reading endgame, I this is a generalization, but it felt like two of the biggest sort of overall hurdles that this family that, that kind of blocks this family from progressing and from sort of changing some of those things are ego and tradition. <laughs> it seems like yeah. everything kind of boils down to sort of an inherent competitiveness within the family of like, you know, whose public persona is is more favorable at any given moment. And also just this is how things have always been done. So why would we change them? W- would you agree yeah. with that assessment? That those are two of the kind of biggest hurdles for them.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that was your takeaway actually, because you know, listen, I remember a year ago when we were, when I was doing the coverage of the Queen's passing, and I don't think there was one person that I spoke to around that time that would have been able to say the Queen had an ego. Mm. It was never about, and and that's quite something when you are literally like the Queen of an entire country for seventy years, and yeah. you are literally probably one of the most famous women on the planet. When you think of Britain, you think of like red phone boxes, black taxi cabs, and the Queen and the Beatles, maybe, or One Direction. I don't know. Like, (laughs) she's just like, she was bigger than the family itself. And so for her to not have an ego, it served her so well because she was always above the fray. She never cared about press coverage. She never cared about what the polls were saying. When you look at the current crop of working royals, you have King Charles, a man who, pretty much since the mar- his marriage to Diana, has been almost obsessed with mm-hmm. media coverage and what people think and say about him, and 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 that has affected so many. Of his relationships in his life, particularly with his own children, you know, I talk about in the book some of the times where those children have been collateral damage yeah, and sort of directly PR crises. And you know, Harry spoke about it eloquently in his memoir as well. And then you also have one thing that is very different today, which is for the Queen. It was always, as I said, it was never about her. She would always she was always working towards serving the nation and the crown itself right her duty was for that it feels like now there is more much more of a kind of selfish pr driven agenda for each of them and you only need to look at listen it's no secret that charles is far less popular than his mother was oh yeah but then you look at william and kate they do have an immense amount of popularity so why isn't they're a situation in which these two very popular royals are trying to support and up the popularity of two less popular, especially in the case of Camilla. And there's been this really interesting separation between the two. We've not seen father and son on Mm -hmm. engagements. In fact, even some of the briefings that come out from William's office at Kensington Palace, have really gone against what Charles is about or saying. You know, three days after the coronation, we had details given to us by William's team that oh, well, when his coronation happens, it'll be very different. It'll be much more like, mindful of the economic
0: climate that we're in. And like,
1: guys, they haven't even tweened right. out Westminster Abbey. Yet. The like, prep,
0: the prep is already <laughs> underway for preparing for William to become king, and it's like, hey, okay, but well, we don't know. Yeah. Is that going to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years? We don't know. Twenty, yeah, exactly. And and
1: I've never seen this situation where there's certainly in my life, of course, in history it's common, but where there's been an heir who is like not only like chomping at the bit to take on this role, which is great to see that eagerness, but literally like stepping on the heel right. of the person that they will succeed. So it it is very interesting dynamic and as we've seen often these dynamics do get in a, in the way of what is right or what is best for the institution at large mm-hmm. can bring can bring an institution down
0: definitely and to me I feel like one of the biggest turning points that kind of ties into this idea is like when Harry and Meghan went on their trip to Australia New Zealand and Fiji the the level of popularity they were seeing was diana level and the yeah. family was directly threatened by that and right when they got back that is when the coverage of them became uber negative very quickly and there was a distinct turning point there is it ego that prevents the royal family from seeing a moment like that international tour that everyone's paying attention to that people are loving them what prevents the royal family from seeing that as a positive for the collective is it that Mm -hmm. is it just ego
1: yeah it, it goes back to what we were just saying i think where the queen would see that as like how wonderful that this helps the, the institution, the crown at large, whereas with other family members, like, well, why haven't I got that? And why is this, why is no one watching my right, exactly. engagements this week? And and so it's sort of, it's all about ego. It's all about one's own personal gain. And, and listen... It's quite normal to be competitive, but then it's also not that normal to be this competitive in a family simply because of the hierarchy and the way it's ordered, it creates that. So for Harry and Meghan, who at the time, you know, Harry would the time was sixth in line to the throne, it was felt like, well, why why should the sixth be getting so much attention? And it's almost hard to remember a time where Harry and Meghan were that popular because it's now like so the opposite. But it really was at that, that. I think that tour was like the absolute peak of it all. Totally, I remember I agree. someone on their team saying to me, "Like, this is great, but it, I'm also scared that this yeah, is going to." There's just only go one way to go really after badly. that, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Especially when you've got people within your own fold who are willing to help make that happen. Right.
0: Right. Um, and the Harry and Meghan story from there has been told ad nauseum. But I do want to. There's <laughs> you write, but you write that sort of one of the just really basic main things that they wanted was, you said, for so long, Harry made it clear that he and Meghan simply wanted to just be heard. They wanted the opportunity to sit down and talk through the past from both perspectives and find a way to move forward. For Harry, it was about seeking accountability and, where appropriate, apologies. And Charles refused. What was the point of no return for Harry and Meghan as it pertains to Harry's family?
1: Yeah, I think that point of no return was quite early on actually and i talk about this in the book where when harry realizes that the calls are coming from inside the house you know when he realizes that it's the people on his brother's team who are responsible for some of the most negative and damaging stories about them entering the public domain and so then you realize well no one has my back in this situation it's almost like a the only result of staying within that is to completely fall to to come out of it so bruised and battered that there's no nothing left for you and i think that was when they started to explore the possibilities of like do they move to southern africa and are they based right. out there for a while or uh, did they start a life in canada and do this half in half out uh scenario that they wanted to you know that they ran by the queen at one point and ultimately this was because they didn't want to disrespect the queen so it was only when the institution said to them like you know what like it's either here or the highway they took the highway and unfortunately since then there has been no real like repair or movement in the right direction, Yeah, I think a lot lot of that has been caused by the fact that they did need that time to tell their stories. And to do that is chaotic. It does cause harm and anger and all the rest of it amongst the family. I think that there truly are people within the royal family who don't see the fact that they have briefed and leaked things over the years as them themselves speaking. It's just part of the job.
0: It's their so age or whatever. Yeah. As,
1: they see it as well. Harry and Meghan have gone out and spoken and we can't. Mm. So then there's more resentment and bitter feeling towards that. And so you're you're now in this situation where, you know, when Harry's book came out at the start of the year, it, he said himself, he wanted those conversations, he wanted ca- accountability. And, you know, it's now the end of the year and it hasn't happened. Right. Um, and I think that for him, and, and there's a moment at the end of his chapter in this book where it's, i describe a conversation that he had with his friend where he sort of has reached this point now where it's like if it's not going to happen then who cares right you know who knows? yeah the
0: future yeah. in our final few minutes i just want to talk about the, fu- the what going forward in the future for for some of these people and you know it's interesting you mentioned public favor has gone down so much around harry and megan i feel like they even when they left, it felt like even a lot of Americans felt really a little bit more positively really about them and yeah. were kind of excited about the prospect of them coming to this country and having a Netflix deal and a Spotify deal. And they were really going to be back in the media in a different way. And at some point, somebody, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of like fumbled the bag. Like some, it felt like the plan didn't go to plan. You know, it felt like there was something that was askew because it feels like, feels like we were supposed to hear from them a little bit more it, feel, it feels like yeah. they were probably plans for other things what do you know about any of that going again not according to plan in terms of harry and megan sort of emergence in america and maybe what they have planned for 2024 and beyond to correct that
1: i mean i think looking at it from just like a PR perspective, doing it in the middle of a pandemic, and then Mm -hmm. the last year of a writers' strike and all the rest of it. When you're running a production company, like they definitely had like everything going against them. Yeah, I also think that, listen, in an ideal world, I think if they were able to like land in America, release the Netflix series and the book all in that one year, it would have like been at the pace that I think people were willing to accept. By the time these projects that take so long to finish is not not for anyone's fault. By the time that comes out, I do understand why at one point for much of the public who are dealing with like much bigger, more important things. You know, there's yeah in the Britain there's economic crisis, there's cost of living crisis. There's, there's war. There's you know such divisive divided times when it comes to our politics on both sides of the pond. There comes a point where it starts to feel like rich people problems, right? And you know, I think whilst the stories and experiences that they share are so valid and worth talking about, if it's not landing with your audience, you do need to address the the conversations that you're trying to have. Uh, You have to be able to read the room. It looks like they really have, actually. You know, I think for Megan she spent pretty much the best part of the year trying to avoid being attached to anything to do with anything. royals or yeah. the royal story whatsoever. And we now see her at industry events and over here in, in, in LA and, and attending uh, Netflix screenings. And you know it's kind of like really gone back to her roots, but in this more elevated way that she was looking for. And I'm, I'm curious to see what comes of that from a business perspective, because We know that she's been beavering away on stuff for so long, but then there is also, I'm sure and without a doubt, there are people around them who are trying to figure out like how do we improve uh, the support for you guys? How do we improve the likability ratings? If there are, of course, yeah, the Q score, yeah, and 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 so much sadly is caused by the press as well, you know. I'll use my book for a, a, an example. I'm really proud of this book. I think that like, I handled the subject as fairly as I could. But if I was to go back at home in the street right now, I know well, I know just from the DMs and threats that I've been there are people that want to spit at me. There are people that are angry at me. There you know, and so and and I understand why it's got that way because all they've seen of me has been what the papers have put out, exactly. which is, I am this nasty, vicious, vindictive liar um, who's just out to cause problems yeah. or make a buck, or whatever, which couldn't be further from the truth. Of course. There's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. So uh, you, you sometimes are put in those situations, even not through your own doing.
0: It's yeah. just... I almost think, and, I, and I'm speaking of somebody who is generally sort of seen their point of view and been on their side of things i i just sometimes think that i wish they would break out of i think sometimes they had the same uh strategies that they learned as part of the firm and part of the the royal family where it's like you know meet up with silence and and kind of don't overshare but i'm like it would be great if megan had an instagram account it would be great if Uh, you know what i mean like there's like
1: back at something (laughs) or
0: even even just like be posting more just normal things that Kind of, it makes. I think it makes every move that she makes a little bit less. Okay, what is it? You know, what's she doing? Whatever. And yeah. that's sort of my mm-hmm. point of view on it. But um, oh, but to end it out, you know, you know, we're at the end of this year. We're at the end of twenty twenty three. It's in a big year. Harry's book came out in January. That feels like it was ten years ago. And your book just came out. A lot has happened this year for the royals and for Harry and Meghan. What would you like to see them do in the new year that feels like it's in the realm of possibility in an effort to move forward or to progress in a positive way?
1: Yeah, Liz, I, I think my realistic expectation is that the royal family at least become more open to having conversations about things that have made them feel very uncomfortable for recent years. I've made them run away and sweep things under the carpet, etc. I don't think it does them any help in the long run. You know, I think even when it comes to just the t- conversations around race, um, when it comes to conversations around uh, the family's colonial legacy, which we see follows them everywhere, you know, to, to be a monarch of 14 Commonwealth realms and not wanna engage in that conversation is so offensive. Mm-hmm. And I look at say, King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands, I'll keep it short, but a year ago he stood in front of the nation in the Netherlands and he, Apologized not only for his family's connection to the slave trade, but also took account, took ownership of the fact that that time has still has an effect on race relations in the country today, and that he was putting money behind a research project to really get in deeper into that. To me, that is a mature and admirable way oh of God, handling yeah. something like that without getting involved in culture wars and all the stuff that I know that people want to. steer steer clear from so i i I hope that there's some growth within the royal family on that front we can't lean on the pomp and pageantry and theatrics forever otherwise you do end up like i say the end game right now is that you either go on to glory or you end up like many other european monarchies fading to insignificancy or becoming just a tourist attraction Hmm. and as for harry and Meghan, i think I think they just need to get on with the work that excites them I agree. don't be worried about will it be a success or will it not just like do what you love mm-hmm. you know, and, and let people see it um I know they put out a a report for their charitable foundation just a few days before we record this and there within it was like so many different projects that this charity had been doing, but none of it had been announced and you just right. think. Let the people know.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't want them to let fear sort of guide them. They should just, because yeah. I think people will embrace this amazing work they're doing. Omits oh, Gobi, thank you so much for taking the time today. Congratulations on the su- success of the book. I'm glad that you were holding up just as a human and did all <laughs> this attention because it, it can't be easy. Um, but I really admire you. And I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me on. I'm sad do not get to talk much about Housewives. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I'll have you back on to talk about Housewives whenever you want. Perfect. I'm
1: up to <laughs> date on all my all
0: my, all my. I show. love it. I love it. Omid, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the show. Subscribe to Gabbing with Gib on any podcast platform to listen to new episodes and subscribe to Gabbing with Gib on YouTube to watch full-length versions of our interviews. We'd also love your support with a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can follow me at Gib Sonoma on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok and keep up with all things Gabbing with Gib at Gabbing with Gib on Instagram and TikTok. Gabbing with Gibb is an independent podcast hosted by me, Gibson Johns. It's produced by myself and Riley Dabbs. Graphics are by Rachel Roth, and our cover art photography is by Troy Hallahan. If you want to reach out about guest bookings, sponsorship, or advertising opportunities, email us at gabbingwithgib at gmail.com. Thank you again for your support, and see you next time.